This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Farming in space, that is the topic for today's episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for the download. My name is Tim Hamrich. Really happy you're here and very, very excited to bring you this episode here today. It's a topic I've wanted to cover really since I started this podcast, but just didn't have the right timing, the right guest, and we sure do for you here today. I have on the show Dr. Ray Wheeler. Dr. Wheeler is a plant physiologist with NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida. He's been with NASA for over 30 years now. And in case you're wondering before that, he worked on NASA funded research. So he knows farming in space better than anyone I can think of. Really, really excited to talk to Dr. Wheeler here today. I, I didn't cut this episode much at all because so much of what he said is extremely fascinating, not just if you're a space nerd, but also because the research they're doing at NASA under the constraints of what it might be like to produce food under these conditions is directly relatable to how we can create a more sustainable food system and food production systems here terrestrially in on earth. <laughs> I almost said in the United States, but on earth. And so just really, really interesting stuff. Excited to bring it to you. I am not going to give a long intro here. I'm going to let Dr. Wheeler dive right into it, where he starts talking about over his 30 years, some of the research that has actually made its way into terrestrial agriculture. And we'll take things from there. Enjoy this interview with Dr. Ray Wheeler. A lot of what NASA did and is is continuing to do was build on established techniques that have, have been used in, in terrestrial controlled environment agriculture. So things like hydroponic cultivation, you know, this is widely practiced. It, it eliminates water stress and nutrient stress. And so, and it allows you to recy recycle and recirculate the water. So those are good things. And, and those are things that would be very important in space. We wanted to use electric lighting systems. And when we started our studies, things like high-pressure sodium lamps and fluorescent lamps were sort of the standard approach. Now, LEDs are, are being used widely. So we took those kinds of principles and then began to apply them with crops and controlled environments that, that really hadn't been studied for production, you might say, in controlled environments. Things like wheat, soybeans, potatoes, sweet potatoes. So that was that was pretty novel in the sense that we were growing crops that people really didn't think much about in terms of controlled environment production. And what, what we saw from that, and, and I say we, meaning the extended NASA community, university researchers and, and our group at Kennedy Space Center, is that you could, you could surpass world record yields that have been reported from field settings for crops like wheat and potatoes and lettuce, things like that. And so I think that was an important observation that came from NASA-funded research, and it, it showed that there's a lot of untapped potential still, yield potential in the crops that we, we use in, in agriculture. That's one thing that stands out to me. There are other more kind of niche or specific things that I think kind of show interesting examples of how this NASA research has kind of 
spun off, you might say, and, and helped in, in terrestrial applications. So a couple examples of that. And nowadays, LEDs, light-emitting diodes, are widely used for plant lighting. In greenhouses and, and vertical farms, plant factories, things like this. It, well, as it turns out, the concept to use LEDs to grow plants was patented through NASA-funded research in 1990. And NASA, at that, it was a group at the University of Wisconsin. And they were interested in getting small solid state lighting systems that they could use in space plant chambers that would go up on the space shuttle and eventually to the space station. So LEDs fit that very nicely. The problem was they weren't very efficient at that time and they were very expensive. And so they continued to develop. I think the patent expired a long time ago. I know it did. But since then, LEDs have just sort of exploded onto the scene and and now uh, they have remarkable efficiencies. They used to be 5 to 10% efficient, now they're 50 or 60% efficient. Hmm. So NASA, it's something that probably would have happened anyway, but NASA was genuinely out in front helping uh, push the development. Another thing that kind of specific to my my background, I did have done a lot of research with potatoes as a as a potential crop for space. And we grew the potatoes hydroponically using what's called nutrient film technique, NFT. So it's just hydroponics where you don't have much standing water. And I didn't think that would work well with potatoes because the tubers are are quite sensitive to poor aeration. So they don't like to be wet. Mm-hmm. But it, it worked very well. And so we could do this repeatedly in our studies at Kennedy Space Center. So it, it's, a, it's an approach that field growers and producers aren't going to use, but there's a niche in the potato industry called seed potato production, where there's a sort of a parallel industry where growers, seed potato growers generate the propagation stock that they sell to the main growers. And seed potato growers like to keep their, their plants isolated from diseases, insects, things like that to maintain very high quality seed potatoes. Sure. And so now a lot of these types of growers are using this type of hydroponic approach, NFT, in greenhouses and, and even closed facilities for seed potatoes. So a, a NASA-developed approach horticultural approach is now used for terrestrial applications. So a few examples like that. And and likewise, we've learned from terrestrial developments. Hmm. Uh, so I think it's been a, you know, kind of a beneficial relationship both ways. Very cool. And is there anything you're working on now, you know, that you could see maybe moving into commercial application in the future? Obviously, you've had big impacts on things like LEDs and hydroponics and this nutrient film technology technique. Anything that you're working on now that you could that you could talk about that, that you could see being commercialized in the future? We're looking at what we call new crops, uh, leafy, uh, different leafy species, some mustard varieties, some other species that, that people have eaten and do use in gardening, but maybe aren't quite so widely accepted. And, and so we're looking at some of these as potential supplemental foods for the astronauts. So some of these might catch on, you know, if if they turn out to be very good nutritionally and taste good. And th- that's not a new 
idea for commercial controlled environment agriculture. I mean, people have been growing supplemental and, and different types of leafy greens, but we might add a few more to the list. I think the the research we do with with increased CO2 concentrations might be very helpful in, in understanding some commercial applications as well. We're stuck in closed systems, so very often the CO2 is elevated because the astronauts are, are exhaling it and it builds up. And so understanding CO2 is something we've always had to wrestle with. And we know that the uh, atmospheric CO2 is rising from you know, largely man-made events using fossil fuels, things like that. So I think maybe some of NASA's sponsored research can can help contribute to our understandings there. Uh, many other groups are studying CO2 carbon dioxide as well. But in controlled settings, you know, where is the optimum? How much is too much? Uh, you know, how do you manage these things? I, I think there are potential contributions there. And how have you managed increased CO2 concentrations for farming in space? What have been sort of the considerations or answers to that question that, that you all have dealt with? Well, based on the literature that already exists, we we know that what are referred to as C3 plants, that's that's a certain type of photosynthetic pathway. They benefit when you elevate the carbon dioxide, you just you sort of speed up the overall fixation process that plants do when they fix carbon dioxide. And we know that if you get above a thousand parts per million to something like two thousand parts per million, you're you're pretty well saturating that that kind of enzymatic reaction. And the main en- enzyme is called Rubisco that does this. Ribulose bisphosphate carboxylase oxygenase, Rubisco. So we know that, and we we typically want to manage the, our systems to be in that range. We, d- we can do that because we have closed systems. In greenhouses, if you CO2 enrich and you're ventilating the greenhouse to cool it, it becomes more of a, an economic kind of comparison. How much can you add or do you not add when you're ventilating? And so it's it's more of a cost analysis thing for terrestrial settings. But I think understanding where you get sort of optimal return, maybe for the minimum amount of CO2 enrichment, is something we're all interested in finding. And then one other point, very often we're stuck with very high or extremely high levels of carbon dioxide CO2. For example, the International Space Station Through its first 10 years of operation, the CO2 ranged anywhere from, say, 3,000 to 7,000 parts per million, so about 10 times the Earth ambient concentration. And so understanding how plants respond to that is something that's important, and we have some ongoing studies. They might have applications terrestrially where you have very tightly closed environments, that's something that's, you know, a little bit of uh, more f- far off maybe, but understanding the, the whole continuum of plant responses to CO2 could be very important. Hmm. 
one of the questions I, I had written down for this interview, you're kind of answering, you know, repeatedly for me, which is, you know, what do you tell someone who's critical of why we should be investing resources in space when we have, you know, issues to, to deal with here terrestrially? But really, everything you've said has talked about how, you know, you're optimizing for space, but, but the, pra- the applications are very, very practical for, for, for us here in a lot of cases. Is there anything that you would maybe add to that other than what you've already mentioned? I think just there have been a lot of novel scientific findings. This is just part of the research process, and and NASA has been a, a good sponsor of this, you know, basic research of understanding plants and how they might respond in space. And so, I think just general contributions to the to the scientific literature that those kinds of things help us in the long run. They might have might not have the immediate applications at some of the, the examples I noted, but I I just think it's it's a it's a good investment in terms of understanding and, and helping out mankind and humankind in general to to advance our scientific knowledge in areas like this. And, and to what extent have we up to this point grown food in space? Obviously, you're doing a ton of work here to to simulate and to prepare for that. But to what extent has this happened? You know, at what point are we that that it's it's already been done? We're already doing that now. Well, there are there are things that that are happening now, and there there are examples of things that have happened in pay, past spaceflight experiments. But these are all very small scale plant chambers. We're not talking a big greenhouse now. We're just talking, you know, uh, maybe a quarter of a square meter or a tenth of a square meter, something like that. So. And, and this is just because we're volume constrained in, in, in settings like the International Space Station. We just, you don't have the room, the volume, the, the electrical power and so forth. But even beginning with the Russian Mir space station, the cosmonauts grew some small leafy greens in a, in a small plant chamber and they they ate this and they sort of had a, a, a bit of a celebration when they harvested the plants. This continued over into the International Space Station. Again, the Russians had a small chamber called LADA, L-A-D-A, that they grew plants in. And now NASA has built a, a small chamber called Veggie, V-E-G-G-I-E, kind of a nickname, but that's the, that's the name that we go by for the chamber, where this has been going now for probably about four years where we've we've done various demonstration tests as we refer to them but growing plants in these small plant chamber there are now two of them on the two veggie units and after certifying that the you know the plants were safe to eat the astronauts on multiple occasions now have been able to eat some of the plants that they grow in this in these veggie plant chambers so it's happening already on a small scale, but these are supplemental foods. They're just a, a few fresh foods that they can add to their diet. We're not to the point of providing life support yet. And how do you, as a plant physiologist, botanist, or astrobotanist is a, is a new term for me that I particularly like, how do you decide which crops show promise for production in space? What, what considerations are there for that? Well, and that's a great question, and it's been asked in the past on, on, on several occasions. And so depending on what setting 
you're you're thinking about? Are you just going to grow some leafy salad crops to supplement the the diet on a space station, or are you going to grow things that provide more full dietary needs, protein, carbohydrate, fat, and so forth on a surface setting? So when you define that, then you can kind of list out the the criteria that you want in plants. And there's several things that are common to regardless of the setting, you, you want the plants to be productive. You want them to grow quickly. You want them to yield edible biomass. That's an agronomic term referred to, referring to that is called harvest index. That's the ratio of edible to total biomass. So we always want to have whatever we grow be mostly edible. And that's with leafy greens, we're good with that because we can eat 90% of the biomass of a lettuce plant, for example. If you were to grow a tomato or a pepper, maybe you might get only 50% of your plant biomass as being in the edible fruit. So we want to keep that high and we want to select varieties that, that partition a lot of their growth into the edible portions. We want them to be short. Uh, you might say dwarf varieties, things like that, because we just don't have the the vertical dimensions and volume to grow big plants. And then we want them to be nutritious, certainly, across the both micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, uh, and then, as I mentioned, the macronutrients when you get farther out into missions to surface uh, settings. And you you mentioned earlier some of the crops. I know you said wheat, soybeans, potatoes, sweet potatoes. Have those been the 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 sort of staple crops, if you will, that you've focused a lot of your attention on because of those reasons? Yes, and and so NASA had a pretty active research effort going in the 1980s and 1990s, looking at crops like those that that you just mentioned, and really understanding how to grow them in controlled environments. And that was really thinking of settings like on the surface of Mars or the moon where you might be able to expand plant growth areas and then provide a lot of food. And so I I guess it's not surprising that the same types of crops that that would work well to keep people alive in a setting like that are the same types of crops we rely on here on Earth, wheat, rice, and potatoes, things of that sort. You mentioned Mars, and I, I, I think your work probably got a, a boost in, in attention due to the, the movie a few years back, the, the Martian, because it's it is so similar to kind of the work you do, and so interesting. My understanding is that there there is water on Mars. Tell me about, I mean, from just a high level, the prospect of someday being able to have people on Mars and to be growing food there. Well. It, it, yeah, there there is water on Mars. There, there's pretty convincing data for that. It, it you know it it depends on the settings, and th- this isn't my area of expertise, but and that's a, that's really important because if you have to carry everything with you and you can't use any of the so-called in situ resources, that that becomes really difficult and and costly to do a mission. So if there is water there. You know, we need to find out where it's most plentiful. It's probably down, you know, into the surface of regolith, as it's referred to. And then how do you extract it? How do you clean it up? How do you then get it into your protected habitat? So these are these are pretty significant challenges. 
can you go, can you pre-deploy some systems before you actually land that begin to extract water? And so water is not only important for, you know, plant growth and for human consumption, but it's also looked as a resource for generating oxygen and and even propellants. Uh, both the CO2 and the Martian atmosphere and the water combined could provide very valuable resources for generating propellants and, and, and oxygen and, and a lot of uh, things that would be needed for life support. But as I mentioned, you know, excavating, extracting, cleaning, and, you know, in a very harsh environment like Mars, those are all pretty, pretty daunting challenges, but things that are being actively studied. Hmm. Uh, we're going to talk more in this in this series about sort of synthetic biology and, and this whole prospect of rather than, you know, maybe rather than simulating ideal growing conditions for plants, maybe we could just sort of, you know, engineer some sort of nutrition for people in space. But But what I've come to realize, particularly from reading some of your work, is that really that ignores the other benefits there are to having plants around should we be in space. Can you talk about that? I think you've even called them kind of evolutionary companions. Uh, just a little bit talk about kind of the other benefits of, of being able to grow plants in space. I think it's, it's an important thing to think about, and, and, and many other people think that way as well. You know, we have evolved as humans in, on a planet where there are green living plants all around us. This is sort of innate to our being, I think, and, and others have written on this, including the very famous biologist E.O. Wilson at Harvard. And so when you go off into space and you live in a very contained environment that's maybe small, lots of engineering devices around you, having something that reminds you of Earth, a green plant where you, you see green color, which is right at the peak of human vision, smelling aromas from plants and adding, you know, I, I think that there's some, some benefits have been studied in certain applications, but for space, it's hard to get data because you have such small sample numbers of astronauts. But I think there's a very positive influence that plants could have on space missions. And so how do you, how do you quantify that? How does that, you know, uh, provide advantages to your mission? Does it reduce risk of depression or crew performance or things of that nature? These are things that we need we need to study a little more carefully, but I'm convinced that there are a lot of positive benefits that that could come by through uh, having plants as part of a mission. So I, I think it's an area of, of need, but I think there's something very real there. And do you work on the genetics of, of the crops themselves as well, or is it mostly dealing with sort of the, the horticultural practices? Our group does not deal directly with the genetics. Um, what we have done to date is just select from existing genotypes and cultivars. And so, and there is quite a bit of a range of, of phenotypes and genotypes out there that, that have helped us just through natural, what, what, what already exists. But you're, you, you ask a very important point and in that we've been trying to manipulate the environment to accommodate the plants. Really, now we have the tools to manipulate the plants 
to maybe fit into the environment through things like genetic engineering and, and, and gene editing. And, and there are groups indeed that, that have been doing this even for potential space application. An example that I like to use is a group at, the, at Tuskegee University that had NASA funding develop a sweet potato strain where they, they infused what's referred to as an artificial storage protein gene into the sweet potatoes and it was expressed in the storage roots and did indeed increase the protein in in sweet potato roots. So those kinds of tools can be used to improve our crops and help us. So I think we need to use all of that. And even for specific needs, you know, we have the capabilities of doing those kinds of, of modifications now. You mentioned earlier the the veggie plant chamber that that NASA has developed. Can can you talk a little bit more about that? About I imagine it's it's you know a, a controlled environment agriculture unit, and and what's unique uh, about that versus maybe other units that try to do the same thing. Well, veggie it is unique in the sense that it's it's sort of a, a very simple system that's it's easily it's collapsible. So it stows in a very small volume. It consists of an LED light bank, and then it has a basal plate where a a reservoir goes underneath it. And then it has a collapsible bellows, a transparent bellows that sort of contain the plants. And the plants are grown in little rooting packets. We we call them pillows that contain some soil and some time-release fertilizer. And so you place those on the platform above the reservoir. And the crew can also water these manually, so there's little watering tubes connected to each of the the packets. So, and then it operates by drawing air from the cabin through the chamber to to help cool it off and provide the carbon dioxide that the plants need. So, it's a relatively simple approach for growing plants. That, as I say, you can collapse it and conform the the volume as needed. And and so that has a, you know, that's sort of one end of the spectrum. The other end might be another plant chamber that's called the Advanced Plant Habitat that NASA has built and is also on the International Space Station. But in that case, the chamber is, is closed atmospherically. So researchers can measure things like photosynthetic rates, transpiration rates. It has very tight control of the lighting the temperature, the humidity, lots of sensors, cameras. And so that's sort of the other end of the spectrum where you have a very a more complex plant chamber that's highly instrumented and really is more designed as a research tool, whereas veggie is maybe more an operating kind of growing system, you might say. I see. Yeah. Well, uh, when you talk about, you know, uh, space stations, it, it doesn't get any more of, of kind of a closed loop than that. I mean, very little inputs coming in and outputs going out. Do you do any of the work with sort of like a repurposing waste, you know, hum, human waste or wastewater and trying to get that back into the system for, for food production? Is that happening now? No, uh, that's not happening. Uh, it turns out our group does get involved with uh, some of those studies, but it's not connecting it to plant growth. We, others in our group uh, do work on, on life support technologies. But that's a, that's a great question because, for example, right now, the urine on the International Space Station is sent into a processing system 
for water recovery because water is a is a big mass cost in, in space, and so you want to recover as much water as you can. So it goes through a very elaborate distillation process. Then that distillate is goes through filtration beds and through a catalytic converting system to get any remaining contaminants, and then it's treated with a biocide. So that's how you get the water back. But you also then have a residue or a brine that's left over that contains all the minerals and the urine. And so, and this question has been asked many times over the years, right now it's it's disposed of. It's just, it's put in a progress module and they get rid of this re- residual brine. But if you go on a, a long duration mission to Mars, now that brine really becomes a resource for you. It contains some very valuable nutrients, nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, things like that, that could be used as fertilizer. So people are certainly thinking about that. There are exploratory tests over the years of how you might make that happen. There's some, the current approaches that they use, they do what's called a a chemical pretreat of the urine. So they treat it with acid and a very strong oxidizing agent. So that, it makes it difficult to use the brine, but if you were to change the way you process the wastewater, now it could be a very valuable resource for plants. And fertilizer costs would be significant. We we did some estimates, and this, this could vary, but if you grew enough food to feed one person continuously, and then meaning provide their calories. So I'm not, you know, there's clearly foods providing many things. It would take something like 90 to 100 kilograms of fertilizer per year to provide that food for one person. So if you have a crew of four, that's 400 kilograms. So those are pretty significant costs in terms of mass and resupply. And any way you can reduce that by recycling nutrients that from your waste process approaches, that's, that would be a big benefit. Are you optimistic that that's that that's possible? I mean, if we needed to produce enough for a crew of four in space, you know, given current technologies, is that is that feasible? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think our what we need really to demonstrate is is uh, sustainable operations, for lack of a better term. In other words, we we need to be sure that we can run these systems and keep them healthy and operating for the duration of a you know a Mars mission or even longer. And so those are important studies to do. I I think we we know how to there will be nuances in uh, in terms of the horticultural approaches depending on the gravity environment and it's very tricky when you're in a weightless setting like on the space station which they refer to as microgravity. I mean it's just very difficult to manage water and re- move it around but if you're if you're on the moon or Mars, you, you do have some gravity. So I think the horticultural approaches that we use on Earth could probably work and you know, for the most part. We know about the lighting. We know what the costs are in terms of consumables and resupply, but adding this extra volume to do this, and if you are using only electric lighting, you need a lot of electric power, so that becomes you know, something that's determined by the the overall mission architecture, you might say. But I think we could do it, but it, it won't happen right away. I think it'll be an evolutionary thing as you kind of, you'll probably grow into it as you stay longer and maybe add more humans to the, to a particular outpost or setting. 
Yeah, I want to talk more about the the gravity issue because I'm I'm really glad you brought that up. I, I I'm not a plant physiologist, but my understanding is that the the plant soil water nutrient equation relies heavily on physics. So h- how do you solve for that in in an environment of, of you know less gravity, zero gravity? How, how do you how do you manage that? Well, as I say, in 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 microgravity, which is you know you might as well call it weightlessness. When you're orbiting the space station or formerly in the space shuttle and so forth, you you have to contain the water. It doesn't run downhill. There's no down. There's no up. And and so, and you don't want free water floating around. That becomes a hazard and so forth. So one of the approaches for watering plants is is using the the veggie uses just a porous mineral matrix and then the water is injected into that or it's it's connected through capillary watering delivery from a reservoir so you kind of ideally you'd like to just feed it as the plants use it but if you if you overwater the plants there's a tendency and this has been observed in space that the plants roots can become hypoxic in other words they aren't getting enough oxygen because the water doesn't drain well and you have poor aeration. And so you're, you're kind of having to walk this line of you don't want the plants to dry out. You don't want them to be too wet that the roots don't get oxygen. And so it becomes difficult and tricky. And one of the, I don't want to go too long at this, but one of the approaches that seems to have worked to date is you use porous tubes. These can be ceramic tubes or centered steel tubes that you embed in a soil and then you use these tubes to irrigate the soil, so to speak. You control the pressure of the water going in there. So you maintain maybe a slight suction, but the soil is in contact with the tubes and it can draw water out through capillary forces. Hmm. So different approaches, but it's challenging. It certainly is. But but all of the kind of the, the transpiration and, and moisture uptake of the plant, all of that's capillary. So it's not really affected by the changes in gravity. No, the the fundamental functions of the plant are still there. It's it's becomes a challenge of sort of meeting the needs of the plant. And there there are other subtle things like if you had a plant just sitting very still in a terrarium, you don't get natural convection through thermal buoyancy in space. In other words, uh, let's say an example of that is if you if you lit a candle in space, it would it would in a very still environment it would just sort of burn itself out. And there's there's lots of studies of combustion phenomena because you don't, the hot air doesn't rise. Again, there's no up and there's no down. And, you, you, and so in still environments, you have some of these issues you have to worry about. But in a plant chamber, we usually we circulate the air with fans so we can, we can minimize that. So the plant physiological responses are, tend to, come in on the on target if you provide their water and and nutrients and light and, and air circulation the one thing that you don't get is what are referred to as gravitropic responses now on earth for example when a when a plant grows up straight up the plumb line as a seed germinates that's a gravitational response the plants are sensing gravity the, the, the stems want to go up the primary roots want to go down toward the source, you know, the center of gravity. So you don't have that in space. So you have to substitute ways of orienting the, the plants, and you can do that with light 
the stems and leaves and so forth. The roots just kind of, you have to discontain them. So there's some differences, clearly, where gravity has direct effects on the plants, but we seem to be able to, to get around those. Uh, this is so fascinating. How about you? Do, do you have aspirations of someday going into space? Well, if you'd asked me that question 25 years ago, I might have said yes. But, you know, if it, if, if it got to be pretty routine and, and wasn't, wasn't too rough of a, a journey, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but I'm, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm getting more content just to, to stay on Earth right now. <laughs> <laughs> on topics like this, Ray, I'm, I'm such a, 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 you know, I'm such a neophyte, I guess you could say. I, I just, I, a lot of times I don't even know what I don't know, but I found this so fascinating. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you think it's a, is, is just an important consideration on an introductory interview like this about, about food production in space? One thing that's, that's getting a lot of attention now are the microbial communities that are in space. They are in our digestive tracts as humans. They're, we have microbes living on our skin. Plants are the same. They have microbial communities that, that associate with them, especially in their root zones where there's water available, even on their leaves. And so there's, a, there's an interest in, in beginning to really understand more, more carefully and, 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 and closely what, what's going on here between the microbes and the higher organisms and, and what are good situations, what are unstable situations. And, and, and so there's a lot of undiscovered things there that I think are very fascinating. But the reason I bring that up for space, and you mentioned this earlier in one of your questions, you, you're isolated. You're, you're on a biological island, so to speak. Every now and then a ship comes to port and a few new things get off and, and you kind of perturb your ecosystem. But it's really an isolated ecosystem that's under some different pressures than you might say on Earth. You have higher radiation, you have weightlessness, you have different atmospheric gas concentrations. And so understanding these microbial communities now that would be associated with not only humans, but now plants, I think is a, is a fascinating area that I think I'm, I'm really anxious to see what will come from that. Yes, absolutely. I'm sure you've probably inspired some listeners here to want to dig deeper into these topics. Is there anywhere that you would point them to just learn more? I mean, obviously, I want to link to your paper that I, that I was reading this morning, Agriculture for Space, People and Places Paving the Way. Anywhere else, either online or otherwise, that we can point people to to, to dive deeper into these topics? Because it's really, really fascinating. I think it's it's worth noting that I've worked for NASA. NASA has clearly uh, interest, had been interested in this area for, for many years, but other space agencies do as well. The European Space Agency has a project called MELISSA, M-E-L-I-S-S-A. They've done research on, on plants and microbial systems for life support. A group in Beihang University in China has been very active. There was a Japanese group that was doing a lot of research in the 1990s and, and early 2000s. So you might check out other space agencies around the world. And the Russians began a lot of this work. And so the other space agencies, you know, in their perspectives on how they might approach these kinds of missions. And then I think the the expanding area of controlled environment agriculture, those, those provide 
excellent resources that are, you know, show the common challenges and needs that you might face in space and, and on Earth. So things like vertical farming, you know, the NASA had a chamber in the 1980s and 90s, which was essentially a vertical stack of shelves, hydroponic shelves and lights. And But the term vertical farming didn't even exist at that time. So I, I, that's another source of information that, you know, and, and so I would encourage people that are interested to think about the whole continuum of, of disciplines that could be used in these challenges, the whole plant agriculture and horticulture, the molecular analysis of what's going on to understand the mechanisms, the, the engineering, the agricultural engineering that, that's needed to, to accomplish these objectives. Uh, I, I think there's a, there's a whole range of disciplines that are needed and, and this area could provide, I think, fascinating challenges for Dr. Ray Wheeler, I can't thank you enough for this. This has really been a treat. I, I, I know you've got a lot going on, so I, I appreciate you taking the time. And I, I really can't wait to share this with everybody. So thank you very much for being on the show. Well, it's been my pleasure, Tim. Thank you. Thank you once again to Dr. Ray Wheeler of NASA for being on the show to talk about farming in space. I thought that interview was fantastic and it got my wheels turning for many more episodes on similar topics that I'd like to do in the future. If you like that as well, I would love for you to give NASA a shout out on the social medias. Please tag me and tag them about the interesting work they're doing for agriculture and the future of agriculture. Thanks so much for your time, your attention, and for caring about this stuff because I think it is of the utmost importance. We'll be back next week with another interesting Ag Innovator. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating Ag Innovator here next week. Hey,